Consider the Israelites in Babylon around the year 570 B.C. This is the most dire and existential crisis of Israelite history. Now that might seem preposterous, ludicrous claim in light of what Israel would experience in the pogroms and the Shoah in the 19th and 20th centuries. And indeed, there would be far more horrific things that the people of Israel would experience. But those things had been endured in lesser degree by Israel before uh, they experienced them in the 19th and 20th centuries. But what Israel endured in Babylon was entirely new. And there was no guarantee there would be an Israel when it would be all said and done. In fact, based on the experience of pretty much everybody else, the odds were higher that the Israelites would have assimilated into the Babylonian milieu than against it, that they would maintain their distinctiveness. What had happened that would lead Israel to find itself in this predicament? Yahweh had proven faithful to Israel. Yahweh was their God, and they were his people. And they occupied the land of Canaan, just as had been promised to Abraham in Joshua 21, 43-45. The twelve tribes had coalesced on account of persistent occupation and oppression by neighboring kingdoms, and it led to the kingdom of Israel under Saul, David, and Solomon. There was some ambivalence about the monarchy and its own forms of expression and exploitation, as you can see in 1 Samuel 8 and 12. Uh, and the days of David and Solomon were not problem-free, because there were challenges, and they mostly came from within the house of David itself, as can be seen in 2 Samuel 13-20 through 20, and in 1 Kings chapter 11. However, the days of David and Solomon would become lionized by later generations. It would become the iconic ideal of Israelite existence. Rule from the Euphrates to the river of Egypt, living in peace and security and enjoying the fruit of the land, as expressed in 1 Kings 4, 24 and 25. It could not, and therefore would not, get better for Israel. And Israel did not well maintain the equilibrium that it had reached at that moment. Because Israel divided into the kingdoms of Israel and Judah and faced a changing social political climate, what Israel saw as its golden age, we in, in historical terms tend to see at best as the early Iron Age, and at worst as the Dark Ages between the Bronze Age civilizations and the Iron Age empires. Because from 940 until about 750 BC, Israel and Judah were part of the push and pull of a kaleidoscope of different kingdoms. They sometimes gained victory over others, sometimes losing influence to others. But after 750 BC, the Assyrians proved ever dominant, gaining victories over the surrounding kingdoms, eventually defeating and destroying the kingdoms of Aram and Israel, and sorely devastating the kingdom of Judah, as we can see in 2 Kings 15 through 19. Israel would, Israel would be cast into Assyrian exile and seemed to be gone, something Judah did not entirely forget. Judah would endure as a restive vassal of the Assyrians until Assyria itself was overwhelmed and destroyed by the Medes and the Chaldean Babylonians uh, in the, toward the end of the 7th century BC, as you can see uh, vividly described in the book of Nahum. Now, Judah is caught again between major powers, and Egypt was more than willing to sacrifice Judah for its own security. And Babylon had destroyed Jerusalem and exiled all of its inhabitants in the year 586, according to 2 Kings 25. And this is how the Judahites found themselves in Babylonian exile. Now, on a religious level, quote-unquote, uh, pre-exilic Israel was mostly content because everything worked for them, and everything made its appropriate sense. Yahweh was the God of Israel and Judah. They lived in the land Yahweh gave them. Their fortunes came from Yahweh's blessings, and their misfortunes came from Yahweh's displeasure. Very few Israelites would have denied any of this. 
But they remained part of that early Iron Age Levantine world. And they would have said Kamosh was the god of Moab, Ramon of Aram, Ashur of Assyria, for instance. Baal was the storm god, and Asherah, or Astarte, was his consort. El was likely subsumed in their minds with Yahweh himself. And throughout this time, Yahweh would send prophets to the people, warning them against their idolatry and the exploitation and oppression inherent in the class structure they had developed. But those messages generally went in one ear and out the other, until it was all too late and all hope was lost. To the end that Israel and Judah maintained confidence in Yahweh would give them victory. And yet in the end, Yahweh did not. And this leads to this existential crisis that the experience of exile imposed upon Israel and Judah. It represented the upending of almost all the fundamental assumptions and beliefs they maintained about themselves and about Yahweh their God. And it's not even just an Israel-Judah matter. Uh, The development of the Assyrian, Babylonian, Persian, Hellenistic empires completely unraveled the ancient Near Eastern synthesis, which you can see uh, very vividly in a very naive reading of Proverbs, or from Job's friends, that individually and collectively you are blessed when your God favors you, and if you suffer, it must be that your God is angry at you for something, or your God is just simply not as strong as the other gods. Yahweh was the God of Israel, but all Israel was now removed from its land. Yahweh had dwelt at Zion, but Zion was now a ruin. The Ark of the Testimony was gone, and sacrifices could not be offered. And so Lamentations vividly exemplifies the profound anguish that would have come upon all Jewish people regarding what happened in 586 BC. Now, we have reason to believe that most Judites responded to exile the way in which almost all the Israelites respond to exile. They assimilate into local populations. And this is the natural conclusion of the logic of the ancient Near Eastern synthesis, that Ashur, or Marduk, has overcome Yahweh. Yahweh has abandoned us. In Jeremiah 44, 15-19, many of the Judites in exile in Egypt would not listen to the word of Yahweh, because in their view, life was just fine and dandy when they sacrificed to the Queen of Heaven, and everything had gone wrong because of Hezekiah and Josiah's purges of that kind of worship. And that is why they would allow their wives to continue to honor the Queen of Heaven. Now, the despair of imminent destruction and exile were very real. In Ezekiel 8 and verse 12, Ezekiel is showing people who are Israel and they're committing idolatry. And they're saying it's because Yahweh does not notice. Yahweh has abandoned us. In Ezekiel 33 and verse 10 and 37 verse 11, Israel despairs of their life or their strength, that their sins have caught up with them and they feel like their elimination is inevitable. And so we can understand why many would give up. They're surrounded by Babylonian propaganda about Marduk and the glory of Babylon, uh, just like everybody else did. After all, Israel and the Aramean Hittite kingdoms went under Assyrian domination, often exile, and they all assimilate in the Assyrian milieu. The Philistines actually were also exiled around the same time as the uh, Judites were. Uh, But the Philistines would never return. The land that we consider the land of the Philistines would be overrun by the Phoenicians, and populated by them, and just would all be later known as Palestine uh, from the Philistines because that was the Greek term, even though the people in along the coast were not uh, Philistine, quote-unquote, at all. But the shocking thing at the time, and the thing that we've now taken for granted, is that there was a remnant who persevered in their confidence in Yahweh, and it's upon this remnant that we're going to focus and consider. Because how could anyone have persevered in their confidence in Yahweh after all that they had experienced in exile? As it was written, 
When you have experienced all these things, both the blessings and the curses I have set before you, you will reflect upon them in the nations where Yahweh your God has banished you. Then if you and your descendants turn to Yahweh your God and obey him with your whole mind and being, just as I am commanding you today, Yahweh your God will reverse your captivity and have pity on you. He will turn and gather you from all the peoples among whom he has scattered you. Even if your exiles are in the most distant land, from there Yahweh your God will gather you and bring you back. Then he will bring you to the land your ancestors possessed, and you also will possess it. He will do better for you and multiply you more than he did your ancestors. Yahweh your God will also cleanse your heart and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your mind and being and so that you may live. Then Yahweh your God will put all these curses on your enemies, on those who hate you and persecute you. You will return and obey Yahweh, keeping all his commandments I am giving you today. Yahweh your God will make the labor of your hands abundantly successful and multiply your children, the offspring of your cattle, and the produce of your soil. For Yahweh will once more rejoice over you to make you prosperous, just as he rejoiced over your ancestors. If you obey Yahweh your God and keep his commandments and statutes that are written in the scroll of the law, but you must turn to him with your whole mind and being. Moses had spoken thus in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 10, right after what he said in Deuteronomy 29, in which Moses prophesied the curses and exile which would attend to those who served other gods. Now notice Moses did not speak of this as a possibility as much as he did as an eventuality. But Moses then extended a promise to Israel, a promise of restoration, that there would be an ingathering of Israel from his diaspora. They would occupy the land and multiply even more than before. Yahweh would cleanse their descendants so they could love him and live. Their enemies would again suffer the curses as they had before. But that would only happen if Israel turned to Yahweh and obeyed him fully. And for those with ears to hear, this is also the promise extended by the prophets. Because when we speak of the prophets, we generally focus on the doom and gloom. And that's for good reason. Most of the prophets who have been preserved mostly prophesy doom and gloom for Israel because they're prophesying in the pre-exilic days to Israel in their sin and yet maintaining that complacency in their condition. But if all the prophets spoke was doom and gloom, then Israel in exile would have had no hope, and they surely would have entirely assimilated. Therefore, Isaiah and Isaiah 35. And most of Isaiah 4 through 66 extended out a similar hope of comfort and restoration, as Moses did in Deuteronomy 30. Jeremiah also extended out similar hope of restoration, and particularly for the restoration of the ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel in Jeremiah chapters 30 through 33. You will generally find somewhere a message of hope and restoration in the twelve, generally at the end of their prophetic messages. But the hope of restoration was most vividly expressed by Ezekiel. Because the condemnation of uh, Israel and Judah in Ezekiel chapters 1 through 33 goes incredibly hard. Because Ezekiel did all he could to express any hope for a quick return to Jerusalem among the Babylonian exiles of his own day. But his turn immediately after the destruction of Jerusalem was just as sharp. It's Ezekiel who envisions Yahweh as being the good shepherd again in Ezekiel 34. Imagine the resurrection of Israel's dry bones in Ezekiel 37. Imagines the reunion of Israel and Judah with Yahweh in Ezekiel 37, 15 through 28. Ezekiel was shown the magnificent terror of Gog from the land of Magog, bringing forth an army unimaginably greater than anything the Assyrians or Babylonians could put in the field, and all to promise that Yahweh would have victory over them in Ezekiel 38 and 39, to prove that it wasn't just a matter that Yahweh was bested by these other gods. And Ezekiel was granted the vision of the idealized, restored Israel in Jerusalem, with the ideal temple, the presence of Yahweh returning to it, the prince and all the allotments of Israel, 
And of course, Yahweh would be there. Ezekiel 40 through 48. And so the faithful remnant perceived that Yahweh had actually proven faithful in everything that happened because Yahweh had promised he would do it if they had sinned and their ancestors had surely sinned. And therefore they trusted in Yahweh's promise to Israel and did what they could to prepare the Jewish people to return to Yahweh and to obey him to obtain the restoration that was promised. And it's kind of a really big mental shift to recognize that all this devastation and destruction was not God proving unfaithful, but in fact God being faithful to what he said he would do. He brought the curses upon them. And the witness of all kinds of prophets had likely been preserved to that point. But by that point, it was evident who was faithful and who had prophesied falsely. And we have the records of the faithful prophets in Isaiah through Malachi. Because those faithful prophets had been vindicated thus far, that God had indeed punished his people. And they reasoned that if Yahweh had spoken faithfully through them about the disaster that they had experienced, then Yahweh's promise of restoration would likewise come to pass. And thus, these faithful exiles did not want to have to endure anything like 586 again. And they compiled and edited the historical accounts of the story of Israel to that point to portray the pre-exilic period in light of how it ends, rendering prophetic judgment on Israel's faithlessness as most vividly seen in the books of First and Second Kings. And so now we can see what sustained faithful Israel in Babylonian exile around 570 B.C. Because Yahweh had been faithful to his promises to Abraham, David, and Israel. And even in the exile, they were experiencing Yahweh's faithfulness to covenant by bringing the curses upon them for their disobedience. The prophets had spoken of all these things as well as the plight of the nations which surrounded and beset Israel. And so a faithful remnant sustained itself in the hope of that restoration. And we should understand restoration that most concrete way. They really were yearning for Yahweh to return the clock to 1950 BC in the comparatively halcyon days of David and Solomon to the imposition of imperial control from the Euphrates to the river of Egypt by a descent of the house of David, with every Israelite having returned from Assyria, Babylon, Egypt, and everywhere else, living in peace and enjoying the prosperity of their land, only this time being more in number and being faithful to Yahweh and not rebelling against him. So in this way, the faithful remnants of Israel hoped in the promise that God had made to Israel. How would Yahweh fulfill those promises to Israel. Well, in some respects, Yahweh fulfilled his promise in the latter half of the 6th century B.C. Because Yahweh raised up Cyrus of Persia of the Babylonians, and he decreed the possibility for Israel to return to its land in 539, as seen in Ezra chapter 1 through 3. The Jewish people rebuild the altar and another temple at the urging of Haggai and Zechariah the prophets from 539 to 515 B.C., as seen in Ezra 3 through 6 and in the book of Haggai. And so Israel had returned to its land. Temple sacrifices were restarted. But no one could confuse Second Temple Judaism for fully restored pre-exilic Israel. Because many Jewish people lived in the land of Israel, yet many more remained in Diaspora, in Babylon, Alexandria, and throughout the Greek, Roman, Parthian empires. No descendant of the house of David ruled from the Euphrates to the river of Egypt, the land now known as Beyond the River. It was instead ruled over, in turn, by the Persians, Ptolemy, Seleucids, and Romans. From 167 to 63, the Hasmoneans ruled over parts of Israel, but never extended their rule beyond the land of Israel, and were quite famously and infamously priest kings. No one was confusing them for the Messiah promised by Yahweh. At best, 
The people were able to eke out a basic living in the land. At worst, they were oppressed by taxes and levies and saw their land appropriated by whether Jewish, wealthier Jewish people or pagan overlords. Israel experienced two existential-level persecution events, the decree of Haman, as described in Esther, and the laws of Antiochus IV Epiphanes, which catalyzed the Maccabean Revolt in 167 BC. And at no point did the Shekinah, or presence of Yahweh, return to fill the most holy place in the second temple, as he was present in the first. So the second temple Jewish people would hear Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 10, and the relevant prophetic text, and they would consider them not yet fulfilled. Because the condition of Israel in exile was by no means fully resolved, or even mostly resolved. Many Jewish people might live in the land of Israel, but the land was not really theirs. The second temple existed, but did not have the presence of Yahweh. People were still scattered and living under pagan oppression. And so Yahweh did not dwell with his people yet. The restoration had not yet taken place. Now, Second Temple Judaism attempted to grapple with this tension. There were some voices wondering where Yahweh's uh, covenant faithfulness had gone. And they protested Israel's condition. They had been far more faithful than before, and yet their condition was worse than pre-exilic Israel's, like the sons of Korah in Psalm 44, or Ethan's laments in Psalm 89. Others were equally convinced of Israel's continual and perpetual sinfulness. Surely Yahweh would restore them when they proved faithful. And because they had not yet been restored, they clearly had not proven sufficiently faithful. And also at this time is when the quote-unquote apocalyptic perspective had gained a lot of traction. That for whatever reason, Yahweh had allowed powers to stand above and overcome the people of God. But at some point soon, he would come and vindicate his people, like we can be seeing in Daniel or Zechariah. Yet what most in Second Temple Judaism looked forward to was relatively unchanged. They cultivated hope in the afterlife and resurrection, but all looked forward to the restoration of all diaspora to the land of Israel, which would be conquered by the descendant of David, who would allow all Israel to prosper in its land. And so Second Temple Jewish people, at least most of them, continued to pine for the halcyon days of David and Solomon. In the book of Acts, chapter 1 and verse 6, after Jesus had been raised from the dead, before he ascended the Father, when they had gathered together, the apostles asked Jesus, Lord, is this the time when you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Because Jesus' disciples were good Second Temple Jewish men, and they were looking forward to the restoration of Israel in the halcyon days of David and Solomon, and they were confident Jesus was the son of David who would accomplish it. And their hope was not misplaced. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 17, Gabriel assures Zechariah that his son John will be the fulfillment of Isaiah 40 and Malachi 4, that he would be the Elijah to prepare the way for the Lord. In Luke chapter 1, verses 32 to 33, Gabriel would assure Mary that her son would be the descendant of David, who would reign over the house of Jacob for eternity, to be the fulfillment of all those prophetic promises about the restoration of the house of David. In Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21, Jesus stood up and declared Isaiah 61 about uh, the anointed one coming to proclaim good news to the poor as having been fulfilled. And you continue in Isaiah 61 in the next few verses, and it is speaking about the restoration of Israel. In Luke 4, verse 43, Jesus' message is the good news of the kingdom of God and that it is coming soon. It will be established very soon. In Luke 21, in John 2, he prophesies the doom of the second temple and reckons himself a temple. In Luke 22, and verse 18, on the night he would be betrayed, Jesus partook of the fruit of the vine and said he would only do so again in the kingdom of God. 
And in Luke 22, verse 69, when standing before the high priest, he forecast the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God, evoking Psalm 110 and Daniel 7, 13, and 14. And then in Luke 24 and 27, in verses 44 through 47, in the resurrection, Jesus explained how he fulfilled all the scriptures and how they would find their fulfillment and what was about to happen. And so we can understand why the disciples would ask that question and would consider that this is now the time of the restoration that Moses and the prophets had spoken of. And there would be a restoration, but it would not happen in the way the disciples were expecting. Now, Jesus has not directly answered them yes or no, but he does tell them they will be granted authority when the Spirit came upon them, and they would bear witness in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, in Acts 1, 7 through 8. And indeed, Peter would proclaim that the things God foretold long ago through all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled in this way. Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and so he may send the Messiah appointed for you, that is, Jesus. This one heaven must receive until the time all things are restored, which God declared from times long ago through his holy prophets. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must obey him in everything he tells you. Every person who does not obey that prophet will be destroyed and thus removed from the people. And all the prophets from Samuel and those who followed him have spoken about and announced these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your ancestors, saying to Abraham, and your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God raised up his servant and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each one of you from your iniquities. In Acts 3, 18 through 26. And so Peter is bearing witness to Israel about how Jesus is a fulfillment of all that had been promised to Israel. Through Jesus, the Israelites could finally have the forgiveness of sin in a very real way that they could not have had experience beforehand, according to Acts 10.43 and Hebrews 8-10. through 10. The kingdom of God was inaugurated in Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. He has been given all power and authority. Matthew 28.18-20, Acts 2.38, Romans 6, Colossians 1, verse 13. And this promise would not just be for Israel according to the flesh. Those from the nations who would share in the faith of Abraham could be reconciled to God in Jesus the Christ and become joint participants in his kingdom, as Paul had made clear in Ephesians 2 and 3. And the gospel would indeed go out to all the world in Colossians 1 and verse 6. And by means of the gospel, God was able to gather in all the diaspora of his people. But anyone, past or present, who imagines the restoration of Israel as a return to the halcyon days of David and Solomon will prove sorely disappointed. And this is the reason most Jewish people have rejected Jesus as Messiah, because he's not the Messiah they imagined. He is not the Messiah they wanted, and his kingdom was not the restoration of Davidic rule over beyond the river as they had desired. And so his word against Jerusalem was fulfilled, consistent with Daniel 9, 24-27. The second temple met the same end as the first temple, but this time at the hands of the Romans in the first Jewish war of 68-70. And after the second Jewish war of 132-136, the rabbis worked to suppress any messianic fervor, considered themselves very much in exile, and deferred hope of the restoration to the return of the Messiah. Now today, Zionism has taken hold of much of the Jewish people. There is some hope for the return of Elijah and the Messiah and the high priest. But most seem to be content with themselves establishing and maintaining a Jewish homeland as a place of refuge and defense. But apocalyptically, Zionist Jewish people and Christian Zionists, in order to uphold their expectation of restoration as the return of the Halcyon days of 1000 BC, need to somehow suggest a re recreation of the world before the year 70 as a way of getting there. 
And that should really serve as really significant red flags to serve as warnings, that maybe the problem all along was the expectation that the restoration would make everything like it was before the exile, but more faithfully. Because it's to this end the apostles laid hold of the promise of a new covenant to expose the challenges that existed in the first covenant. Because in both Romans and Galatians, Paul argued at length to express how justification could not come by works of the law, but by faith. The Hebrews author will quote Jeremiah 31-33 about the promise of a new covenant to speak about the fact that there was a need for a new and better covenant, which means that the one that existed already uh, had its deficiencies and that what would come in Jesus was greater than what had come before in Hebrews 8 and really throughout Hebrews 7-10. through And so in the eyes of the apostles, 1000 BC was not the Halcyon period imagined, and a restoration to pre-exilic context would not fix the actual problems of corruption and sin and death. And this is why the restoration of Israel is not going to be found in trying to recreate the Davidic world. Instead, it is found in the life, death, ascension, resurrection, lordship, and imminent return of Jesus of Nazareth. Because if the restoration really demanded a kingdom based in Jerusalem, Jesus was offered a lot of opportunities to make it happen, and he declined them all. Instead, he allowed for reconciliation between God and his people through his death and resurrection. That Jesus is God in the flesh. In Jesus, Yahweh returned to become the good shepherd of his people. And through his spirit, God dwells with his people, and he is their God, as was promised in the restoration. Jesus released the people of God from captivity to sin and death and brought them into the freedom of the children of God, as was promised in the Restoration. And in Jesus, all kinds of people, and no doubt genetic descendants of pre-exilic Israelites and Judahites, have been restored to God by means of the gospel, as was promised in the Restoration. So Jesus of Nazareth, descendant of David, reigns as Lord over heaven and earth, as was promised in the Restoration. Whatever has not reached its fulfillment in the kingdom at this point will find its fulfillment in the resurrection and in the new heavens and the new earth. And so Yahweh indeed had proven faithful to Israel, even in exile and after the exile. Yahweh's faithfulness did not look at all what the prophets or their descendants were expecting, but it was fulfilled nevertheless through what God has accomplished and is accomplishing in Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, lordship, and imminent return. And therefore may we find restoration to God in Christ through the Spirit, the share in life in God forevermore, and to be fully restored for all time. So glad that you've joined us today. We would love to hear if you have any questions, comments, or thoughts about the promise to Israel. Please let us know in the comments. Please subscribe to us from here where you found us, and also please share if you found it beneficial for you. I'm Ethan. We work with the Venice Church of Christ. We are uh, a group of Christians in Los Angeles seeking to glorify Jesus and to encourage one another in the faith. We'd love to be of service to you. Can we assist you with prayer? Or maybe you'd like to do a Bible study or Bible correspondence course. Maybe you'd like to meet with us. Please let us know. Reach out to us at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. You can also find us on all kinds of social media at Venice Church or Venice Church of Christ. And may the Lord bless and keep you until we're able to meet again.